Welcome to Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. We go behind the scenes to get the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you can become a better leader and gain fresh wisdom for both your personal and professional life. I'm your host, Allison Trebridge. And I'm your host, Caitlin Crosby-Benward. And you're in In Real Real Good Good Company. Company. (laughs) Caitlin, I am so thrilled that this week on the podcast, we have one of my professors from Oxford. He was a professor of negotiations. And honestly, it's the favorite class of all the MBA students. They like fight to get into this class. The content is so good. And he agreed to come on to the podcast and share his wisdom on how to be a great negotiator with us. What did you think of it? Uh, I need to listen to this every day because I, I think I'm pretty much the world's worst negotiator. And I think, you know, he really gave words to that. And it did make me realize that not only in business that do I need to work on my negotiating skills, but also in my personal life and how there's so much crossover mm, there. Yeah. There's so much crossover. But and then I I, I do want to say that, you know, in starting this podcast, while I was excited to ask people questions about why they started what they started, doing an interview like this actually ex- excites me even more because this is the type of content that fascinates me that that I want to help put out into the world because we're getting the opportunity to sit in at an Oxford MBA class and we can live vicariously through you in, in this uh, interview. So I, I'm really happy that we're able to share this content with our listeners. It's very, very, very special. Yeah, we talk a lot about not only hearing this kind of inside stories, stories from the front lines, so to speak, but also what are the skill sets that we need to build good companies and and good communities and meaningful lives? And, And a topic like negotiations, I think sometimes intimidates people or we think, oh, you only need to know how to be a great negotiator if you are a Fortune 500 executive. And it's, as you said, it's actually the opposite. We're all negotiating all the time sometimes every day in our lives. Like, where do you want to go to dinner? I want Chinese. Well, I want Mexican. We're going to have a negotiation, right? And and in our family lives. And and so I just think it's so practical. And I love how, how John breaks it down into such a simple, easy to understand, easy to remember kind of format. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having the connection to him and going to Oxford so uh, we can all partake in the wisdom. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. It's something that I want to, again, work on is speaking up and asking, asking for what I want. That's something that is really uncomfortable for me, even with employees. Honestly, I, I sometimes I see other people that are quote unquote bosses and, and, and the way that they even make requests of their team. I, you know, oftentimes I just feel uncomfortable asking for things that are even part of their job description or not, or just asking for things that I need and for what I want. It makes me so uncomfortable. And it's not just in business. It is also in personal life. I think I'm fine for the most part with my husband, but with friends or acquaintances, you know, this is a whole world that I think I need to challenge myself to speak up for myself, use my voice and remind myself that I'm worth asking for what I I need and, and want. Yeah. So thank you for bringing this man into our lives. (laughs) Well, without further ado, here's my interview with John Burroughs, who I should add is the senior lecturer at Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, as well as an associate fellow at Oxford University. Here's my interview with John Burroughs. 
John, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Glad to be here, Allie. This is exciting. It's so fun. So for our listeners, you were Professor Burroughs to me when I was at Oxford in one of the literally the hardest class to get into because everybody loves negotiations. All of these MBAs looking for jobs and ready to negotiate salaries, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear it. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, it was so fun. I, I, I think it was the most interactive class that I took. It was like every day we were we were acting things out and practicing. And I remember there were a couple of times where other students totally twisted my arm on things. And I thought I did a great job. And then you find out that you totally... (laughs) <laughs> totally just gave them everything. It's it's very it's a very fascinating practice to get into. Absolutely. And that I mean, raises a really important point right there, right? Is that a lot of us don't really know how good a negotiators we are. Yeah. Right? Because the reality yeah. in the real world, we don't often have any data to, to go on, right? It's an N of one. Right. You walked out feeling good about it. That's that's the reality every day in the real world. Right. Mm. In a negotiation class, you get to have that kind of sanity check of, oh dear. How did the other people in the same role who just did the same negotiation, how did they do relative to me? Totally. But, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm no, no, no. Myself. It's so true. Well, <laughs> and so so I think when people hear the term negotiations, they think that that's something that maybe matters twice a year. Like I'm, you know, negotiating yeah. a price for a house or I'm buying a new car being the classic example. But it's some something that's so much more applicable than that. Oh, absolutely, Ali. I mean, I think, you know, we're doing, we're involved in countless negotiations every day. And I, I say that with listeners on the phone who, who are sure that that's not the case for them, you know, because yeah. they're not buying and selling companies. You know, they're not deciding how to divide up the budget for the mayor's office of Chicago. Um, the reality is, you know, who's going to walk the dog tonight is a negotiation. You know, what are, <laughs> totally. what are we going to watch on Netflix? Right. You know, what right. are we going to order on Grubhub? These are all negotiations. So I think one of the things I try and push hard in my class is I want you to dramatically broaden your sort of umbrella of what you think of as being a negotiation. In some sense, every difficult discussion, conversation you have with uh, uh, with other professionals you interact with, but also our loved ones. Mm. Each one of those is a negotiation. Thus, being a better negotiator has the ability to pay dividends across all aspects of our lives, right? Not not merely our professional lives. Yeah, yeah. And and as you and I were talking about this before, we kind of broke it into you kind of have five ways to be a great negotiator. So this this is kind yeah. of the first one, right? Yes, yes. I, I think it's really crucial to have a, a much, much bigger uh, lens, as it were, to think about what is a negotiation. So absolutely. I think that's that's high on my list. You know, I think after that, I, I think, you know, an awareness of some fairly simple heuristics and biases that we all can succumb to, it, it can pay huge dividends. So, So without getting too far into the jargon, this is the simple idea that, you know, we all have brains wired up that are good at doing some things and not so good at doing other things. And at some points can can make make easy mistakes and can hurt us. And a, a terrific example of this is is the importance of, of anchoring. Mm. Right. I don't know if you remember this from class, but this is the yeah. idea that 
in a negotiation, right? And again, there are some, some parameters that we can go into, some sort of that, that, that scope this down a little bit. But essentially, you know, throwing out that really aggressive big number or very small number at the, at the beginning of a negotiation can have huge impact on the outcome of that negotiation, such that even if you know that number that is sort of you're, you're hearing is crazily high or crazily low, the evidence is that. It, it, it dictates in large part the ultimate outcome we end up with, even when we know that number is crazy. Yeah. So is it like that's that's setting kind of a reference point for where you're trying to get to? Is that what's happening? Partly that. It's partly also the fact that we tend to find negotiations stressful. Mm. They're full of uncertainty, Right. I, I kind of have a sense, I hope, of where my lines in the sand are. What do I think would be a really good outcome for me? What would be an acceptable outcome for me? What would be a outlandishly you know, great outcome, I think? But the reality is, for the most part, those are best guesses. And then, then I'm trying to figure out, as you're approaching the negotiation, kind of where your head is. What, where do you think this deal is going to end up? And that creates a great deal of stress, a great deal of uncertainty. Mm. And what does an anchor do? An anchor provides some kind of guidance. I hear a number. It may not be a number that I find particularly palatable on some kind of <laughs> conscious level. Totally. <laughs> but nonetheless, my blood pressure drops, right? Mm. My, my heart rate eases. I become comfortable. And the mistake wow. many of us make is... We kind of hear that number. We kind of know the number we hope to get, but kind of probably think thought we wouldn't really get. And then we agree to meet in the middle of those two numbers. Mm. And we think that's a good outcome. Right. But actually both parties are kind of losing if you're just, you know, splitting the difference, so to speak. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's so fascinating because I it, it is true. One of the most stressful things is when you're in a negotiation and no one is putting anything out there. And so you feel like you you ever it's almost this very awkward kind of high school dance where you don't know, you know, what like what are we even talking about? Are we on completely different pages? But both parties are kind of scared to be the first one to say something or trying to get the other person to say something first. Is it better to speak first in that sense? Ah, this is a good question. And, and I have an answer. The answer is, if you're talking about distributive negotiations or primarily distributive negotiations, what I mean by that is there is a number that where that is the principal focal point of the negotiation and one of us wants it to be high and one of us wants it to be low. So, you know, uh, negotiating the price of a used car, buying a house. I'm not saying there aren't other very matter but you know the principal one is the price right yeah in those cases actually speaking first is the right thing to do interesting so, you know which again this whole sitting silent thinking that this is a, a poker game and we want to keep the cards close <laughs> to our chest and not <laughs> yeah. share information yeah. is actually completely wrong really right? yeah in actuality in those cases we want to speak first we want to aggressively anchor uh, in, into our advantage. So depending on which side of the table we're on, that can either be very high or very low. Take it from there. And again, I think your question brings up another kind of set of issues, which is this sense that we kind of think the right thing in negotiations is to kind of keep quiet. And then if we're not going to keep quiet, we perhaps think we should kind of be 
fudging and perhaps being dishonest. And and actually, I'm going to say really the right thing to do in negotiations is to be honest and forthright mm. and mm. and articulate that there are multiple dimensions of most negotiations, right? Yeah. And there are, you know, and I might care more about one than the other. I, I might have more flexibility vis-a-vis one than the other. And actually, the right thing in a negotiation to do is to kind of share this, which is not the same as saying at the get-go immediately, you know, you know, share all information in all detail. But I, this idea that we should be kind of dishonest and underhanded and Machiavellian in negotiations is actually not the case at all. Yeah, which is, I think, why a lot of people are afraid of it in a way is because either they feel like they need to compromise their values or they're going to be negotiating with someone who is taking advantage of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fundamentally, we're all good people. Not everyone, but most of us are good people. (laughs) Uh, And therefore, this sense that we're supposed to be kind of bad people to negotiate effectively, I think is absolutely a big part of of why we kind of shy away from it. We don't want to be bad. We want to be good. Right, right. I I think we, we can be good. We need to think about negotiating as sort of advocating on behalf of our interests or our interests of, of an organization we represent, right? Yeah. So, you know, is that an NGO? Is it the mayor's office? Is it a startup, right? There's nothing you'd be afraid of to fight, you know, aggressively for an organization you believe in, Yeah. right? Yeah. Similarly, there's nothing wrong with, with holding out for an appropriately suitable compensation package for an NGO that is looking to hire you. I can't tell you how many times I have students kind of worry that pushing too hard for a compensation package with, you know, a social sector organization kind of runs, you know, is antagonistic to the idea of joining a social sector organization. And I said, and I'll say, well, the alternative is you, you won't take the job. And yeah. presumably that organization will be better off having you than not having you. You're a multiplier in that sense. So aren't you doing them a disservice by, yeah. by not articulating what package would secure your employment? Well, and to that point, I mean, for one, I think it just underscores your first point about the just applicability of negotiations being everywhere in daily life. It's not something that we can avoid if we're going to be existing in the world, whether they're tiny or massive. But to that, one thing I always wonder about with the concept of anchoring is, do you ever scare someone away when you anchor? So if, you know, someone's going to to hire that, you know, new student for their nonprofit and the student says, I need to be making half a million a year and the nonprofit's yeah. like, OK, forget it. Do you have any advice on that? No, it's a a wise question, Ali. I mean, look, the reality is, uh, you know, as I say many, many times in my class, you know, you've got to do, you've got to do the due diligence, right? So, so I'm not suggesting that, you know, if you do the research and the salary range for this role in this kind of organization is fifty to seventy thousand dollars, that the right advice is to go in and ask for half a million dollars. Right. 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 <laughs> right? I mean, like, that but I was be... anchoring. <laughs> <laughs> and say, well, John told me to do that. And I mean, you know, that was the right, that was good advice or terrible advice. <laughs> no, what I would say is this is do your research, but but then anchor, you know, outside the bounds of mm, that. You know, mm-hmm. I think my scientific guidance, and I keep waiting to hear from kind of a 
fellow faculty member or writer somewhere, you know, for be better advice than this. But, you know, how do you know if you're anchoring appropriately or other? how do you know if you're not anchoring appropriately? You ought to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Ooh, Your okay. stomach ought to turn a little <gasps> Ooh, bit, right? Okay, yeah. If you don't feel a little bit embarrassed about throwing this number out there, then I'm going to tell you you're not anchoring. Wow, so, so that's great. So again, I, I'm talking to a, a, you know, a, you know, students, whether they're MPP students, MBA students, and other grad students, or senior executives. I'm going to say consistently the story is people aren't aggressive enough in their mm. negotiations, right? Which is not the same as saying, you know, <laughs> always ask for half a million dollars and it's never going to hurt you. But I'm saying the more common problem is that people sell themselves short, mm. is that people ask for way too little and then get it and then are unhappy, right? This is the, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the winner's curse, right? I, yeah. I, go, I mean, you know, I go in and ask for something, they give it to me without even negotiating. Yeah, totally. <laughs> then you definitely knew no, you undersold yourself. But I, this happens every quarter with my students is that a student will come and say, I'm applying for this job. Here's what I think is a salary band. I'll say, look, I'm not sure your data are accurate, but let's assume they're directionally correct. Here's what I still think you should go and ask for. And again, it's it's outside of the bounds of that. It's not half a million dollars. <laughs> most of my students. Yeah. Yeah. But it's an aggressive number. But then I also say, but then ask for other things too, right? So ask for an aggressive salary, but also ask for tuition reimbursement. Also ask for a starting bonus. Mm. Also ask for a Mac laptop. Mm -hmm. Ask for a flex day every Friday, right? Yeah. What you do here is you set up the possibility of taking a, a simple distributed negotiation, which is one where only one of us can win and the other loses in some sense, right? We're going up and down a value line, high salary, low salary. I go, I create the possibility of creating value because now I'm having negotiation where there are multiple issues at play. Some I might care more about, but others I might care less about. Yeah. And the really neat piece is when the person I'm negotiating with feels differently about kind of the, 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 the weighting of the various issues. So what? So to keep with our example, this is where you know I ask for a high salary. The person I'm negotiating with really can't give me that salary, right? It's coming straight out of her budget, and and just can't do it. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, I've, I'm asking for you know tuition reimbursement, which she hadn't even thought of as putting in the mix for this job. But as it happens, that comes out of HR's budget. Right. That's kind right. of quote unquote free money. Yeah. To yeah. me, as a future employee, whether I get if I get tuition reimbursement for a current as a current MBA student or having just completed my MBA, I don't really care whether you call that. I don't care what which bucket that's coming from, yeah. whether it's HR's budget or your budget. I care that I can pay my bills regardless. Totally. So, this totally. Is, so we set up the possibility of entering into what we call integrative negotiations, trading on our differences, actually profiting from the fact that we have different points of view as to what's valuable and what's not so valuable. I think that that was actually the biggest probably takeaway for, for me from, from your course and something that I still think about all the time is common knowledge is to approach a negotiation thinking that it's zero sum or that we're negotiating over one fixed 
element. Like we'll just use the example of a salary and it's it's the number. But realizing, and this is why I loved in, in class when we'd go through these exercises, because one person is given a document saying what's more important to you is location and flexibility and getting your tuition repaid. And then the other side of the coin, the other person in the negotiation is trying to get the lowest salary number possible. And you come at it thinking you're both negotiating over the same thing when actually both parties have totally different sets of values and what they want. And if you start thinking about it as different levers that you can pull, you can much better come to a negotiated agreement where everyone is happy about the kind of mix of results. Uh, you, you couldn't, I, I couldn't have said it better, Ali. I mean, I, I think you, you absolutely on the spot, but we, we students, you know, practitioners, we, we all tend to approach negotiations as if, you know, the person across the table is the enemy who must be vanquished. Yeah, we probably right. don't phrase it quite like that, but you know, we, we want to win. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say no, most negotiations aren't like that at all. Yes. Some are right. That negotiator of that used car, does probably fit that model or buying a mattress, you know, at a, a you know old school mattress store perhaps fits that mold. But most negotiations are opportunities for us to come together as collaborators and, 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 and create value together because of our differences, not in spite of our differences, but actually because our differences allow us to create value. You care a lot more about having an employee in a certain geographic location. I'm relatively indifferent to that, provided I'm paid a, a, a appropriate, an appropriate salary, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's something, you know, we're kind of trading these issues, not just running up and down a value line. So it's yeah, so this good. ability to, to recognize differences but it is part of it. Um, but the other part is also recognizing that sometimes we want the same thing, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, Key, key points I want to make to my students in the early weeks of a class is get away from thinking everything's zero sum, just as you said. The other piece is then recognizing that sometimes you want the same thing. Um, and our knee-jerk reaction when in a negotiation, the person across the table says they want the same thing as what, Ali? You, you think they're lying and trying to pull a fast one on you, mm. or you start to doubt yourself. You start to be concerned that you didn't prepare sufficiently. You misunderstood the terms of the contract as presented in the draft, right? And the yeah. reality is we have to be prepared for on many, many issues, in many, many negotiations, we want exactly the same thing that the person mm. across the table. We shouldn't find it surprising at all to see that. And then so that we got we got distributed, got you know, compatible is what I call those issues. And then the last box, the last bucket is the is the integrative, the ones where we actually feel differently about these sort of hopefully pairs of issues and can trade on those differences. Uh, and that kind of goes to another key thing I, I highlight in my class, which is the importance of, at the very least, leaving issues on the table in the negotiation for a good amount of time. And better still, adding issues into a negotiation. Oh, interesting. Give me an example of that. Well, we could be, uh, you know, my former life, I was a software salesperson for uh, for Siebel and Oracle, among others, right? You can imagine I'm talking to a client about, you know, 
how many hundreds of thousands of dollars they're going to spend on our software. And we're, and we're going back and forth on, you know, is this a $900,000 deal or a $700,000 deal? And what I might decide to do is throw out, well, have we considered financing, right? Is, is financing something that would be appealing to you? Right, we're Oracle. We've got a good credit rating. You know, low cost of capital. You're a you know small startup or a mid-sized startup looking to buy our software. Perhaps can't as easily free up cash to make such a capital investment. You know, why don't we agree that maybe the price is the price that's a win for me? Mm. But I'm now going to introduce this this you know that add complexity in and bring in the issue of financing. And most people get horrified at the thought we're going to add complexity to a negotiation. That seems absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I'm going to say, no, 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 actually it's the right thing to do. Hmm. By adding in these new issues, we increase the probability that we can identify positive traits, that we can enter and we can recognize that, okay, great, with financing, yeah, I'm happy to pay the 900000 and stop quibbling over 900 versus 700 because you're going to finance it for X number of years on our behalf. Yeah. So that, yeah. those kinds of things, adding things into the mix that weren't there initially. Do you have advice for getting an, to an understanding of what's important to the person you're negotiating with? Like, how do you begin to distill what those values are as more complexity is added to the negotiation? I think the simple answer is listen. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not being just coy. I'll give yeah, you a straight answer yeah. to the question in a minute. But there is a sense in which if I look around my students and I wander the hallways as they as they're paired up doing these negotiations, more often than not, the, the the better outcomes, the better negotiators are those who say less. <laughs> right. Interesting. You know, the one the ones who say you know, open their mouth less and, and and listen more tend to be the better negotiators. The reality is we owe, we make the mistake of getting too fixated on a stressful situation, too fixated on wanting to sound clever and, uh, and open our mouths. And, and we need to do better about quietening down, watch, watching and listening for what's you know, the various kinds of information that are coming across the table, right? So whether that's literally words or whether that's kind of nonverbal uh, cues that we we may not be picking up on otherwise. So I think a big part of it is pay more attention, Hmm. ask more probing questions, but ask questions in a way that is is safe. You know, why I, I tend to encourage people to to tease out the the, the 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 mix of value preferences that an individual has is to kind of offer bundles. I think I would have covered this when I taught you. Is, is so we'll talk about, you know, rather than me putting you on the spot and saying, okay, Ali, what salary do you need, right? Mm. How do you feel? You feel threatened, right? Or at least uneasy. Interesting. Right, right. Or put on the spot. You're put on the spot. You're asking, you're being asked to divulge information, and you're kind of like, well, hang on a minute, you haven't divulged what budget you've got. Why should I share my salary? So you're kind of on the defensive. You're not sure to what degree you should lie or not, but it's just you feel it's it's just icky. And I'm going to get none the wiser because, of course, you're going to ask for a high salary, or maybe not quite as high, and we're going to argue. The better approach is to say, look, Ali, you know, here's a here's an offer I could entertain. 
this salary in this city doing, you know, this job role. But you know what? I could equally see us hiring you to do the slightly different job in a different city with a commensurately lower salary, right? Um, so there were these two bundles, A hmm. and B. Hmm. I I can make either of them work. What do you think, Ali? Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's really good because then you're you're allowing the other person to say, well, gosh, you know, being based in L.A. instead of San Francisco is actually a much higher value to me. And then, you know, OK, location is top of their list or, you know, I really just care about the number because I want to earn as much as possible right now. And then you're like, OK, that's salary. Exactly. But you don't actually even have to say it that way because it, you're you're demonstrating in some sense, that you're the balancing of those three issues by your preference for A or B. Yeah. But you're kind of, but you're obscuring the exact balance from me. All I know is that you prefer A to B. I might not infer why you prefer A to B, but maybe not. I'm not mm. wrong. Right? It may yeah. be that the particular yeah. job role is much more exciting. The point is, I'm eliciting a response from you that feels safe to you to reveal information to me. And, the, and why is it? Well, because it's bilateral, right? I've already told you these two bundles work for me. Mm, mm-hmm. right? Now you're telling me maybe A is better than B. Maybe you say, you know what, John? Neither one of those work for me. And I'll be like, okay, what about bundle C versus bundle D? Mm. And then you think, well, I want to pull a fast one over John. I'm going to try and lie to him. Well, what does it even mean to lie in that case, right? Lie about which bundle is more appealing? It's hard. It's, it's not obvious that that's something that can actually be done, which is another reason to bundle, right? Yeah. It kind of skirts this whole issue of, of, of honesty. But here it's like, so you say you like C incrementally more than D. And then I can iterate on C, right? I can say, what about C versus F? You prefer, oh, you still prefer C. What about C versus H? <laughs> Yeah. Z. <laughs> yeah. We can keep going. And at some point we end up with a bundle that we both are happy to go forward with. And thus I've asked in some sense, although without saying the words, and you've answered in some sense without saying the words, what are your various preferences across these various things and what do you really value, what's really driving you? Right. I'm getting yeah. down, I'm understanding sort of the the, the metaphysical interests rather than merely positions, right? I, I'm kind of getting down into what's motivating you to do a deal without necessarily having you voice that. Yeah, it's so good because I feel like it's that's such a tangible, applicable way to think about negotiating, even in just daily life interactions. Like you're planning to get together with a friend and it's like, okay, we could do, you know, coffee next to my office at four or we could I could cook dinner for you at (laughs) six or we could meet instead the following week next at a location near you for lunch. And then it's giving them options and they can choose what works best within those value sets instead of kind of kind of creating this open space where no one quite knows where to, you know, what what to grab hold of. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to me now about one of one of the the other ways you talk about being a great negotiator is through shared terminology. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So again, uh, this this is this idea that, you know, often negotiations are done in groups or at least in pairs, right? So is it a husband and wife 
going in to have a negotiation about, you know, what they're going to pay for a house or for a car. You know, is it, you know, you're with your boss in the middle of a negotiation for, you know, an M&A transaction. Let's stick with, a, you know, a complex M&A transaction. Yeah, yeah. Right. So then we might have a, a multifaceted deal team. We've got principals. We've got the C-suite. We've probably got investment bankers in the room. We've got lawyers. We've got all kinds of folks involved. And one of the challenges is, is we need to prepare and prepare together. But one of the challenges to doing that is, well, we need to be very precise about certain things, tactical and strategic, in this negotiation, both kind of now and as they're going to sort of pop up live in the midst of the negotiation, how do we prepare and ensure we're all on the same page? And I want to argue the right way to do that is to have a set of shared terminology. And these are things that certain folks listening will be somewhat familiar with or very familiar with, things like reservation prices and aspiration prices and, and zones of possible agreement or batners that can frankly sound on first blush a little jargon heavy. Um, you know, a little kind of content-free. Um, and I'm going to argue that they're not. These mm. are, are really a nice way for people who are negotiating in groups to kind of come into alignment quickly and say, ah, we are on the same page. We have this, we, we, here's what I think the reservation price should be. Here's what I think the aspiration price should be. Here's what I think is the zone of possible agreement. This is our batner, our best alternative negotiated agreement. Okay, same page, great. Or mm. we're not, let's resolve these differences before we sit down with our counterparts. Oh, God. So it. I could go go into the details of, of each of those or some of those, but it may not be necessary. But as you know, the, there's a great book, Getting to Yes, very famous, easily uh, accessible on Amazon or Audible. I think on Audible, it's like seven bucks or something. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I would strongly encourage anyone who hasn't listened to or read Getting to Yes to go listen to that. Uh, really terrific book that kind of introduces, and it does a lot of things very, very well. Right. Um, but it does a very nice job of talking about the different terminology uh, a negotiator should be should be aware of. Let's um, let's talk again. about two of those really quick. What is what is the zone of possible agreement, the ZOPA? And what is the BATNA? Yeah. T- talk us through yeah. those two. Because those are ones I feel like you hear floating around kind of the negotiations. Yeah. Discussion well, a now lot. you. Well, now you said that to get to get to what is a Zopa, I needed to go through the aspiration price and reservation price as well. So you're going to get the full answer here. Great, give it, give <laughs> us. The, I think I think it's just super fascinating and and helps kind of give some anchor points to thinking about yeah, it. Sure, 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 sure. So so you can imagine right in a simple transaction, true in a, in a complex transaction too. But let's just in a simple transaction, you're a buyer and a seller. We're trying to agree the price of a used car, right? As the seller, you know you're coming to the table with a kind of, you know, what's the lowest amount of money I will take for my car, right? In your case, that is your reservation price. Mm, Got it. Right? What your aspiration price is, 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 and what it should be, what it should be is if the stars and the planets align (laughs) by some miracle kind of thing, what number will I get? Yeah. The reality is, which is that you want a very high number. The reality is most of us downplay the aspiration number. We kind of, we, we tend to have put a very like, you know, low ball aspiration number out there and then feel super pleased when we almost get to it. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So you can yeah. imagine, 
So you've got a reservation price and aspiration price, but then think about the person across the table. They also have an aspiration price and a reservation price, right? In their case, the reservation price is, you know, the price that, you know, I will not pay any more than this for the used car. On the other hand, my aspiration price is, dear God, what if the guy virtually gives the car to me? What will I have to pay? Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. I can then, if you sketch these kind of on a whiteboard, you can imagine there are two lines that overlap, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Where my line, you know, the one end of the line using the same scale with the reservation price and aspiration price, and then the line of the person I'm negotiating with, if they overlap, and very often they will, where they overlap, what we call that is the zone of possible agreement. That's the arena in which a deal can be done. That's awesome. Now, the reality is in a negotiation, we're going to, we're not going to know at the get go the four data points necessary to be certain of what the ZOPA looks like. And in fact, we may never know with certainty in a negotiation. In fact, I would argue we will not know with certainty in a negotiation those four data points. But what we want to do is hone in and iterate and get as close as possible to kind of our best estimate of what those four are, such that we can determine, can we do a deal? And if so, where in the space is it going to occur? Mm. So that's that's the first three. And then and BATNA is, is my favorite and hopefully okay. your favorite. Yes, tell us, <laughs> tell us about BATNA. What's the BATNA? <laughs> so the BATNA is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. One of the, the mistakes that negotiators often make is they get really revved up and prepared for negotiation. They sit down and do the negotiation. Very quickly, it appears that it isn't really going where they wanted. But you know what? I prepared really hard for this negotiation. My boss is expecting me to finish this negotiation. Mm. Damn it, I'm going to see it through to closure. Mm. And what they often do is accept a deal that is actually worse than if they just got up and walked away. Hmm. Yeah. So what a batner is, is in some sense, you want to think about it as kind of a flashing neon light on your shoulder, reminding you, it ain't that bad if I walk away. Or hmm. rather, it could be good or it could be bad. But whatever it is, I need to be constantly reminded of what it is. What happens if I walk away, right? Yeah. If I'm unemployed, that's a different thing that if I, than if I'm suitably employed, right? But having knowledge of what happens if I walk away is an extremely powerful thing to, to have an understanding of in a negotiation. That's so good because I think part of the fear around negotiations is I'm going to get backed into a corner and take a bad deal or we're just going to meet in the middle and neither of us will be happy. And to feel like you have you know, it's it's like the back door you can back out of at any moment where it's just like, nope, OK, that didn't work. And I'm OK. And this is fine. No, nope, absolutely. I would say that that's a big mistake that, 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 that many folks make that the back can resolve. And then I think going back to aspiration and reservation prices, I think what we, we need, I, I said, one of the points is we want to make our aspiration price a true aspiration price. Yeah, it needs to be real like, wow, I would thrill if this happened, right? Yeah. And then the other thing I want my students more and more, I'm the first to admit, I still make this mistake, especially under pressure, right? Especially when I'm feeling rushed and I should put the phone down or say, you know what, I can't take this call right now. Let me think about this and get back to you is 
what we often do is we settle for a reservation price, mm. right? We or and we we start negotiation by anchoring on our reservation price, not our aspiration price. And I did this last year, oh, and I, I even told is you know I got a call I wasn't prepared for. I was about to go in and give a speech to, to one group, and I got a call from another group saying. We'd love you to come do a keynote. What do you charge? And I was rushed and I, like, they sounded like a fairly modest sized healthcare kind of cooperative. I kind of thought, you know, I'll, what did I do? I threw out a number that was my reservation price. Mm. Right? Um, I went and gave the presentation. Um, it turned out that this was a huge, <laughs> uh, you, know, uh, you know, NGO that I ignorantly wasn't aware of. I, you know, I was, you know, I gave a keynote to, you know, 600 people or something. Oh, wow. The, 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 the maker comes up to me at the end, me on the back and says, John, wow, that was one of the best keynotes we've had and by far the cheapest. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So you can imagine I teach <laughs> negotiations for a living. and uh, That's humbling. <laughs> that, was, that was humbling. So I would... <laughs> So uh, each day we just got to get a little bit better. Yeah. uh... Oh, man. While I'm thinking of it, talk to me about the role of planning in a negotiation. You were, you were, you know, just saying you got caught off guard in that. How important is it to kind of plan and prepare and kind of what is the weight that you spend time on that versus the negotiation itself? Yeah, I would say most people, for a variety of reasons, you know, overestimate how good they are at negotiating, right? You can imagine, as I started off by saying, you know, we don't have real data in our real lives, right? You walk away from a single negotiation, you feel like you did pretty good. So you then infer, seemingly based on the data, that you're a really good negotiator. So the next negotiation rolls around and you're convinced, well, I didn't prepare last time, I did it pretty well. Uh, as it turns out, you didn't do well last time. You just think you did well because you don't have any data to assess your performance. Mm. But nonetheless, you, in your deluded sense, feel like you did really well. So it didn't prepare last time. Don't need to prepare this time. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then, whoa, you did well in this negotiation. This becomes a self-perpetuating thing. So mm. over time, we all become overly confident in our abilities to negotiate and therefore massively underestimate how much preparation we should give to a negotiation, which means that how much time should we think through ourselves and with others we might be collaborating with to how to approach this strategically and tactically. So I would say, you know, it's almost flipped the percentages. If you say approximately 20% of the time people spend preparing and 80% in the thick of the negotiation, you know, aspire to try and flip that. Try and spend far, far more time thinking about the people at the table, thinking about the various, you know, what are the, what's their aspiration price? What's their reservation price? What are the personalities at the table? What are the negotiation styles of the people at the table? What are the negotiation styles of collaborators, right? Lots and lots of complex things to think about. What's the organizational structure of our respective organizations. That stuff mm. matters. What are the reporting lines? Yes. Yeah. Who are they trying to play to? Yeah. Yes. 
Exactly, exactly. The other classes I teach are kind of leadership and, and organizational psychology. And I, I think, uh, you know, when, when I get around to writing a book, you know, the book I think needs to be written is one that recognizes that negotiations um, occur, you know, in an institutional milieu, right? There's, there, we're all parts of organizations. I'm part of a public, you know, a, a, you know I'm in the mayor's office in Chicago, you're, you know, you're in, you're, you're in, you know, the, you're in the state capital, you're an NGO, we all have kind of different institutional norms, we're serving different stakeholders, we work for different bosses who care about different things, right? Right, right. We often in negotiations classes, for obvious reasons, there are only so many things you can cover in a 10-week class in an MBA program, is we tend to focus much more on the on the the behavioral science aspects, right? On the psychology of negotiations. And we don't think as much about the sort of the complexity of the organizations around us. You know, the big thing I say in my class is look, we're going to focus the next few weeks on you know, what, how are you going to figure out what to say at the, at the table when you're negotiating, right? But I'm going to say the, the big challenge in negotiation is, are you negotiating with the right person, mm, right? Mm-hmm, totally. <laughs> and we don't tend totally. to give much thought to that. This person's holding themselves out as a decision maker. Are they? Yeah. Do they really control the budget? Yeah. Well, I would say that's the understudied part and the underwritten about part of negotiations is, is this person the principal I should be interacting with? Yeah. Well, and that brings us to our kind of last topic. So of the five number, just quick recap, number one being broad applicability of negotiations. They're not negative. They're everywhere in daily life. Number two, think about the heuristics, the biases, anchoring kind of bucket the issues, think about how you can create more complexity, different values that you're creating within the negotiation. Number four, share terminology, get on the same page with your team. If you're doing a team negotiation, think about the the zone of possible agreement. And lastly, relationships. So what's your advice as it relates to relationships and negotiations? Relationships matter a lot, right? I think the reality is we often underestimate you know, the, the, the frequency with which we're negotiating with the same people, hmm. right? So we all operate in much smaller worlds in some sense than we anticipate, right? And often where we're negotiating with people where kind of our roles will change in the future, right? right so, right. you know, I'm currently collaborating with, another person to sell third. Well, what happens if that third hires me in the midst of the negotiation? And now suddenly, you know, maybe for ethical reasons, I can't be a principal on the other side of the same negotiation, but now I'm working for a different organization, looking out for a different set of interests. Now working for someone against whom I negotiated in the past. Yeah. So I tend right. to think we need to, need to be much more mindful of, of valuing the relationships. And, and again, this, I don't want to sound like I'm contrary to what I said earlier, which is, you know, aggressively anchor, fight hard to achieve an outcome that's appropriate for you and in the interest of your organization and so on. But at some points, appropriately, you know, balance, you know, kind of qualitative and more quantitative aspects of negotiation, right? right. I don't want to you know, win the battle and lose the war. I right. don't want to beat you up so much 
that you're just sick and tired of me and you'll do the deal, but then you never want to talk to me again. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of like the kindergarten principles of like, be fair, be honest, no lying, be kind, you know, and, and just like the character that you bring to the negotiations table. Yes, absolutely. So I, I think this ability to, to value relationships, but to think about negotiation styles. So, you know, or, you know, what's your natural approach to negotiation and at times be able to kind of moderate that, right? Maybe I'm by inclination very aggressive in my posture. I need to be mindful that I might be negotiating with someone where that's really going to hurt me, right? And, I, and a savvy negotiator is able to kind of fit their, their approach, their style to the personal people they're negotiating with. Yeah, I learned recently that one of the reasons why when the Japanese have a business negotiation, they always use a translator, even if they don't need one, because they like to have the pause to think about what they're going to say before they before they say it. Yeah. Oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's so very, very clever. But yeah, very, very thinking clever. about the style of the person across the table from you and how you can meet them kind of in the where they're coming from. Absolutely. But then a, then a caution would be on this is, is, you know, don't appropriately value the relationship, right? A mistake that is, is often made by negotiators is, you know, I'm negotiating with you, Ali, and you're delightful, right? You're a charming person, magnetic personality, and you offer me a crappy deal. <laughs> but, but the mistake I made is I kind of can't escape your magnetic personality and find it hard to disentangle the fact mm. that offer you made me wasn't very appealing. We do, we make this mistake all That's the so time. That's so true. Yeah, we conflate the person and the deal that we're getting. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, there are times in which it matters, right? The reality is, if I'm looking to, to form a cooperative with you, I'm looking to buy your company or partner with your company, then whether I like you or not matters a lot, right? right? right. Because you're, that, that relationship is a key aspect of our ability to do business together in the years ahead. But, but similarly, there are times in which I'm going to be negotiating with someone, actually, that person is going to disappear. After the tra- after the terms of the deal are inked, right? Like the used car, salesperson, yes. the totally. used car, totally. Right? In which case the relationship doesn't matter at all. And the mistake, the opposite mistake we make is we negotiate with someone we find who's turn who makes us uneasy, right? They, they make our skin crawl, right? This is a person is objectionable. Whatever I want to run for the hills. The mistake we often make is we we fail to recognize that sometimes when negotiating with someone like that who's actually offering us very attractive terms, mm, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to separate these two out, right? The the people, the, the the details of the negotiation from the person doing the negotiation, right? And and appropriately weight the importance of that relationship, not inappropriately weight it. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Such a good reminder. That's when I, I think I definitely bought a used car, the last car I bought for too much because I thought the guy was nice and I didn't push hard enough. But I was like, what a lovely, what a lovely young man to do business with. And then I was like, afterwards, I'm like, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so helpful. John, any, any final thoughts or, or final takeaways for us to be aware of as we go into the world, building companies, trying to make an impact? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I don't. I, I, oh, 
Ali, I'm not sure I got a good answer to that off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, we covered a lot. We Dad covered a lot. Check on that one. Let me think about sharing, trying to encapsulate my wisdom into a 30 second closing remark. I don't know. I've got any. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> this was this was more more than enough, more than enough. Honestly, though, this is all so helpful, and it's like it's given me even so much to think about as as I, you know, focus a lot on raising money, and I feel like I'm constantly in in negotiations, and it's it, it it's encouraging and challenging in a really helpful way. So, thank you just so much for the this great overview of everything. Cool. Glad to glad to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Oh, such a good episode. Caitlin, what did you think? Definitely uh, need to apply that to every area of my life. Very, very grateful that you went to Oxford so we can all live vicariously <laughs> through you. Thank you. Not only was it one of my favorite classes while I was in school, but even just getting to talk to him again and hear that wisdom and those frameworks all over again, I'm like, this is something I'm going to be constantly learning and relearning and practicing and reapplying because it, it, gosh, it affects every area of life. Yeah. Thank you again for traveling across the world (laughs) so we can, we could get, gather that information. Well, Allie, I think... This is is getting close to the end of season one of our, ah, of our podcast. I can't believe we've come this far, Caitlin. How many episodes have we done? This is what eight, nine, eight, seven, eight, nine, ten. We've done a dozen. We've done over a dozen. Wow. Okay. So next episode, everybody, just giving you a little warning, is going to be our last episode, and we're gonna talk about uh, all of our favorite parts of the podcast interviews that we have done thus far. Yeah. So we're going to do our end of season one highlight reel and go through a few of our favorite moments and just want to say thank you for taking this journey with us and listening along with us and excited for what's to come next. See you all next week. Bye. Thank you guys for joining this episode of Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. Music from this episode is probably from one of Caitlin's old demos. (laughs) Megan Schwindling was our producer. And thank you guys so much for joining. And always remember to stay in Real Real Good good company. Company.